Well, good evening. I was really quiet. Good evening. I know you're there. Everybody's just settling in. As I've been saying, I really, I hate to break up the fellowship. We need it so desperately, you know. It's just, it's amazing that we can have this time to just uh, connect with each other, you know, in an environment where we're safe and where we're blessed and uh, in the presence of the Lord. And God has been blessing us. And I'm so grateful that he continues to allow us to, to meet, which we've been doing pretty much through this whole craziness. And uh, here we are on a Wednesday in God's Word. So we continue in our series of studies in First Peter. You can turn there with me. Uh, last week was very much an introduction. We pretty much only looked at verse 1, uh, and, and we read the introduction, verses 1 and 2, but we looked at verse 1. We talked a lot about Peter and why the letter was written. But this evening, I want us to get right into the, the, the introduction, but also the first part of this book, and really begin to uh, dissect the message that Peter has for the church, which again, the theme of this book is living for God. So with that, let's open in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you so much for this fellowship, for our church family, for our worship team tonight, and how you just use them to usher us into your presence. We're so blessed when we praise you. We're so blessed when we fellowship, and we're blessed when we study your word. So we ask that as we study your word this evening, you would speak to our hearts, encourage us, teach us, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds that can absorb all that you want to show us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, back to our introduction again. I'll read it, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers or pilgrims in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. In this epistle, as we've seen, he introduces himself by stressing his authority as a leader within the early church, an apostle. He calls himself an apostle, and in Greek that word means one who is sent, an envoy, an ambassador. Think of it as an ambassador, someone who represents his government or nation in another nation. So that would be an apostle, representing the kingdom of God on earth. He was sent directly by Jesus himself after having followed him for three and a half years. So Peter certainly called and qualified by God to be an apostle sent by God. He was also considered one of the three pillars of the Jewish church in Jerusalem as well. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul makes mention of the fact that there were these pillars of the church. Now what that means is in Jerusalem, in the Jewish church, there were several leaders that were presiding officers over the church. And the church was sort of built on their leadership as God led them. Uh, there, was, there was certainly uh, James, which we just studied the book of James. There's Peter, there's John, and there were others as well. But the three pillars of the church there uh, really came down to those men and Peter being one of them. Now, in this letter, he addresses Jews and Gentiles that have been scattered throughout Asia Minor. Now, when we say Asia Minor, we're talking about modern-day Turkey little bit of Syria maybe, but modern-day Turkey predominantly. And uh, as he writes, he uses this term elect, and of course that word means picked out or chosen by God. And you know, the other day I was uh, 
in the produce aisle. And you know when you go to pick out produce, especially at the Costco, you look through the rack of mangoes. And, you know, I see people do this all the time. They'll go through the different uh, containers and, like, switch stuff around so they get the best six mangoes in their container. And they're, they're going through this. And I don't really think you're supposed to do that. It actually annoys me a little bit. But, you know, if I'm picking out mangoes or I'm picking out oranges or, or I'm choosing some produce, I look at that produce. And none of it's ripe yet, but all of it gives a sign it might be starting to rot or there may be issues with it or may have a spot of mold or something. So I choose very carefully my produce. I'm sure you all do. The word for elect is that of choosing carefully. And why do I say that? Because a lot of times I think people think of being elected as, you know, God has chosen you and you really can't do anything about it. God chose you, like it or not, you're chosen. Or if you want to be chosen, you're not really good enough, so you're not chosen, even though you want to be chosen. That's not the way to think about being God's elect. God's elect is when God looks at you, he observes you carefully. He looks at you. He, he knows who you are from the beginning of your life to the end of your life and in and through eternity. He knows who you are and he chooses you elect on the basis of the foreknowledge of God. That is knowing how you will respond to being chosen. He knows all of those things. We can only think about how we would choose. Like I use a silly analogy of produce, but we, look, we only look at the outward God looks at the inward. He looks at the heart. We look at the outward signs of something. We, we assess a person and say, well, that person looks like they might be a good Christian or a disciple. That person looks like they, they might follow Christ. But God is able to look and choose based on what's on the inside, things you and I could never, ever see or know. So when we say elect by God, understand that has nothing to do with the way we choose and unfortunately, what we do theologically many times is we call people elect or we talk about the election of God, but we use a very human understanding of election. And then we present this doctrine of election that suggests that God chooses you the way we might choose you. You ever choose people for a sporting team or a baseball game or maybe a game of basketball or volleyball? You know, if you're going to choose someone in basketball and volleyball, you're not going to choose me. You're going to choose somebody a little taller than me. Eventually, you might get around to me because I can serve pretty well. But the bottom line is we choose on the basis of human characteristics and our limited understanding of things. Never, ever think of election in human terms, and you'll be fine. Oh, but does God choose us, or do we respond to God? Yes and yes. God chooses us on the basis of his for knowledge, knowing all things. And so, yes, I believe in election, but not the kind of election that's a human election or a choosing like I've described already. So to be chosen by God is to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That is to be saved, to be chosen, to be saved. To be elect is to be saved. And this would be of particular significance for those Gentiles that were reading this letter who, for maybe their entire existence thought, well, we're not chosen. We're not the chosen people of God. We're not elected by God. Only God's people are chosen. That wasn't true. Not anymore. And so of particular significance for the Gentiles was being called elect of God. 
Maybe you think that God didn't choose you or wouldn't choose you, but if you've responded to God, then you are elect, then you have been chosen. Amen? I hope you see it that way. Too many people get tripped up on that word elect. Christians in any age and from every ethnic background are rightly called God's elect. And it's not on the basis of whether you have flaws or whether anyone else would choose you. It's on the basis of God knowing all things. So if you don't know all things, you can't really understand the doctrine of election. You certainly can't explain it or teach it in a dogmatic way. And I think it's important to make that point. Okay, now we get to the term strangers, which we talked about a little bit last time. Now, it doesn't say strange, although sometimes Christians can be a little strange. This term strangers refers to pilgrims that are away from their home and looking for a new one. When we talk about the pilgrims in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, we were talking about a bunch of people from England, predominantly, who wanted to leave their home in England and find a new home in the new world. That's why we call them pilgrims. They were leaving their home to find a new home. That accurately describes Christians in any age and at any time. And then he mentions these five areas listed collectively, which represent this area of what is today modern Turkey or Asia Minor. He mentions Pontus. Now, that was a Roman province of Eastern Asia Minor. And uh, you'll remember Aquila, of Priscilla and Aquila. He was a native of Pontus. And then we mention Galatia, or he mentions Galatia. And by the way, Pontus means the sea. It means the sea. And uh, it was a province near the... uh, Euxine Sea, and that's why they called it that. Then there's Galatia, and this is very interesting. Galatia means the land of the Gauls. Perhaps you've heard of the Gauls who settled throughout Europe. Well, they initially made their way from the Indo-European area and settled here in what is Turkey. Many of them kept going, and they made their way into the areas of France and Spain. Uh, The Gauls there definitely... uh, uh, were known to, to live there. Uh, many of them settled in uh, northern Spain, Galicia, which is Galatia. It's the same thing, really. And then they ultimately made their way up into uh, what is today the United Kingdom and became the Celtic people. And so those people made their way from the area near India and Asia all the way up into the British Isles. But the area of Galatia, or the land of the Gauls, was a Roman province in Central Asia Minor, and it was a place that uh, many of these people lived. They weren't Greeks, they were Galatians, they were Gauls. And uh, Paul visited Galatia on his second and third missionary journeys, and uh, Crescens was sent there by Paul at the end of Paul's life, so uh, it comes up in the scriptures. Then there's Cappadocia. Cappadocia means a uh, province of good horses, so an area where they raised horses. Uh, It's a Roman province of Eastern Asia Minor, and it was the easternmost and the largest of the provinces of that area. And then we have uh, Asia is mentioned. It means Orient. And uh, it's interesting because you know how silly people get? I should say not all people, just people today in the United States. Um, We get so silly about words, right? There are words that, you know, five years ago were fine, and now if you use them, you're racist, you know? And I can remember as a kid, uh, when we talked about Asians, we said Orientals. But apparently that's offensive now. And I don't mean to be offensive by saying that. I'm just saying we used to say Orientals. No one, you know, we didn't get the memo that that was somehow racist. Um, And now you say Asian, right? You know what's funny? Both the words mean the same thing. 
You see, that's what happens sometimes. Like, people get crazy. They get, they get silly with words. It's semantics. As I like to say, <laughs> I'm anti-semantic. Anyway, so what I know about this word Asia is it actually means Orient. Okay? It was a Roman province of Western Asia Minor, and it was uh, referred to as Proconsular Asia. comes up in the scriptures. All of the seven churches of Revelation were located in this province of Asia. And Paul's longest pastorate in the city of Ephesus uh, was in this area. In fact, Ephesus was the capital of proconsular Asia. And so all these areas we're familiar with. And then we get to Bithynia, which uh, was a Roman province in northwestern Asia Minor. It actually means a violent rushing. Uh, But what's interesting is Paul was prevented by the Spirit of God from entering this province. He wanted to go there, and the Spirit said no. And then so he went into Europe instead. He went into Greece and into eventually to Rome. So that's uh, a little bit of the, the, you know, the, the history, the background, the geography of what this area looked like at that time and the different provinces that Peter is writing to. Now, he identifies the blessings that they had received as Christians through each member of the Godhead. Now, this evening, the worship team sang, you are so good to me, you know, you are beautiful, my sweet, sweet Lord. And each of the verses actually uh, speak of one of the members of the Trinity, you know, Father in heaven, Jesus who loves me, right, Spirit who guides me. And I'm glad that you guys sang that song because tonight we're going to see that Peter is very careful to talk about God in the triune way. One God, three persons. And in fact, in this introduction, that's exactly what he does. Notice in verse 2, speaking of God's elect who have been chosen, in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, which we talked about, of the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood or the blood of Jesus Christ. In that, you see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, it's not in the order of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's in the order of the Father, the, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. And all that shows us is that when Peter wrote to the elect of God, the chosen of God, in this area of what is today Turkey, he spoke to them about God in three persons. Why is that important? Because there are some that would suggest that God isn't three persons, that the Trinity doesn't exist, or that it's silly to think of God as being three persons and that the Bible never really supported that. It's interesting, they say, well, the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible. Well, no, it isn't. But the concept is clear. And it comes out loud and clear in this introduction and in the next section. You see, these are all the blessings that they had received as Christians through each member of the Godhead. And it starts with this. We've talked about it already. They had been chosen by God the Father on the basis of his foreknowledge of how they would respond. So the first blessing we have in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that we've been chosen by God. Well, we've already talked about how are we chosen. We're elected by God based on his foreknowledge, his understanding of all things. God doesn't choose and make mistakes. And so when you say, well, I had no choice but to be saved because God chose me, you're not thinking clearly. We're blessed because God knew how he would respond. He knew how he would respond, so he chose us. And that's why we read 
that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But that choosing is done through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. Now we talk about the Spirit. One of the blessings that we receive through God the Holy Spirit is that we've been sanctified. The word means set apart. So in addition to being chosen by God the Father, selected, we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, set apart, put aside for his work, different than the rest of the world. It's an elaboration on the concept of election, but it's important to understand sanctification means God has set you apart from everyone else. He chose you, and then he set you apart for a purpose, for a plan. Sometimes people talk about sanctification as a process, and in the sense that we're realizing in our lives the holiness of God as we grow to become more like him, that's true. We often call that practical sanctification. That is, in our lives, we practically begin to be more like Christ. But sanctification as a doctrine is really positional sanctification. That is, we are sanctified in Christ. That is a past tense. It's like being justified in Christ. means that you're just as if you never sinned. We're just in Christ because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That is, God has made us separate. We're not working on that. That's not a process anymore. Positional sanctification is a completed process that was completed by God the way the justification for our sins was completed on the cross. And again, yes, there is a practical sanctification, but that's not what we're talking about here. If you notice, the sanctifying work of the Spirit does make us more like Christ over time, but the work has been completed in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's an important concept as well. It's one of the blessings of God. And it's for the express purpose of obeying Jesus Christ. Did you see that? We've been set apart. Why? Why have we been set apart? To rebel? No. Set apart to obey Jesus Christ. It's only possible to obey Jesus Christ because we've been set apart by the Spirit, chosen by God. If God didn't choose you, on the basis of his fourth knowledge, and, and you weren't sanctified by the Spirit, you, you couldn't obey God, even if you wanted to. But of course, we have been. He awakens within us the first faint longings of God and goodness. He's the one that touched your heart, that made you think, you know, maybe I should give my life to Christ. That thought, when that thought occurred in your mind, when, when that feeling or sense of your spirit in your heart made you realize, you know, I need to respond to that message, the message of the gospel. That wasn't you. Bless you. That wasn't you. That was the sanctifying work of the spirit. He was awakening within you and within all of us the first faint longings for God and goodness. People aren't naturally godly or good. They're wicked and evil. So what made you, what made me, what made us draw near to God? It was the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He draws us to himself. Amen? It's important to understand that. He also does something else. He convicts us of our sin. I mean, before you came to Christ, if someone told you something was sin that you didn't think was sin, you would argue to the death. But you know, as the Holy Spirit reveals to your heart, you know what sin is. 
And so he convicts us of our sin, as Jesus said he would, and he leads us to the cross where that sin is forgiven. Amen? Your sins are forgiven because the Spirit brings you to a confession, to a conviction, and then to a repentance, a confession of your sin. He enables us to be freed from the sins which have us in their grasp. And he enables us to gain the virtues which are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of the things that, that we really, truly need to be, the Holy Spirit makes happen in and through our lives. These are the blessings of God, the Father, and now the Spirit. He also does something else, and this is important. He gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus Christ is Lord. No one calls him Lord but by the Spirit, and there are many people who wonder whether they've been forgiven of their sins. But the truth is, if the Spirit has sanctified you, you have been forgiven of your sins in Jesus Christ. And that leads us to more in the next section. But before we get there, the Holy Spirit does this work. And, of course, the Christians then and the Christians now, all of us, have been cleansed and forgiven of our sins by God the Son. So you see now we've talked about the Father, the Holy Spirit, And now we talk about God the Son. It's through his death on the cross. We see it right there. And it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Now, the Spirit didn't hang on the cross. God the Father didn't hang on the cross for your sins. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who became a man, came and died for your sins. So these are very fundamental truths of our faith And they're presented in the context of blessings from each member of the Trinity. And it's appropriate, and and it's very good doctrine, obviously. But Jesus' blood purifies us and cleanses us from the stain of sin. His blood consecrates us, sets us apart for service. His blood establishes us in relationship with him and calls us to loving obedience. You know, the difference between loving obedience and obedience is the person who exercises loving obedience does so because they actually want to. The person who just obeys may or may not want to. But loving obedience is something very different, and this is what is given to us, provided for us through the person of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so Father, Spirit, and Son are presented in this way by Peter, showing us the blessings that come through the Father, Spirit, and Son, through a relationship with God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he extends an abundance of God's grace and peace to them. This is his introduction. Of course, I like to say God's grace must always precede his peace. Until you receive his grace, you won't experience his peace. If you reject the grace of God, you'll never have peace. He extended to them what is the common Greek greeting, grace, and the common Jewish greeting, peace or shalom. This was Peter's greeting in both of his epistles. We'll see when we get to 2 Peter. And of course, it was also Paul's trademark greeting that he used in every one of his epistles. Very common way to greet those in the early church. Well, now we get into the rest of this section here. And we get into part one of this book, which is from chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 12. 
And there are three sections, and the first is this. It talks about salvation in Christ. That was our introduction to salvation in Christ, and now that's what we're going to focus in on for a while. And the first part of that message, in verses 3 through 12 of this chapter, is an encouragement from Peter to put your hope in Christ. To put your hope in Christ. If that introduction didn't bring you to the truth of salvation in Christ, nothing will. But put your hope in Christ. And now he goes back over the three members of the Trinity and encourages us to do exactly that thing. To put our hope in Christ. So let's start in verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot there. But the gist of it is this. We have hope for an eternal future through God the Father. Because you see, God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And in this first section, Peter wants us to know we have hope for an eternal future. Now we think about our future in terms of this life, but we need to think about our future in terms of eternity. And then suddenly the next 60 years, or for some of you guys 60 years, certainly not for me, uh, doesn't matter so much. Eternity is so much more important than the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? And, And we have a living hope, is what Peter tells us. A living hope, a hope that is alive. And of course, that's a little bit of a play on words, because our Savior is our hope, and he's alive, amen? He's risen indeed. He's our living hope, but we have a living hope. And it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And it goes on to say that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we don't have a dead Savior. I know some very wonderful people who think that they can find hope in the teachings of someone that died thousands of years ago. There are some people who think that you can find hope in the teachings of Christ, but not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul made it clear that if that's the way you think, then you're to be pitied above all else. Because unless there's a resurrection, you don't have a living hope. That's why it's essential as Christians that we believe that God the Father raised him from the dead. Paul made this clear in Romans 10. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, Believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? We have a living hope, and it's through the resurrection that we experience Christ. See, the Father is worthy of our praise because he raised Jesus from the dead. He's merciful, it says there in that text, because he has given us new birth. By the way, there are some Christians who don't think you need to be born again. Despite the fact that Jesus made it clear in John's Gospel in chapter 3, you must be born again. I often like to show people who don't understand the new birth that verse and this verse. He's merciful because he has given us new birth, and he's given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus. 
understand, this is great, great doctrine. This is really great, almost theology, really. But it really breaks it down in this way. How are you saved? Well, you're saved through Christ's death on the cross. He died on the cross for your sins. You're a sinner in need of salvation. He died on the cross for your sins to pay the price and the penalty of sin. But how is it that you receive eternal life? Well, we're born again, and that happens through Christ's victory over death. So it's not enough to just believe in the crucifixion. You need to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because his death saves us. His resurrection is how we experience being born again, new birth, new life, eternal life. Very simple concepts, but important and forgotten in this day of the abandonment of God's word. Peter hasn't even gotten just a little past his introduction, and already he's hitting stuff that most churches don't want to talk about. Think about that. Powerful stuff. Truth. Distilled down to very basic concepts. You see, our hope is alive because Jesus is alive, amen, and he lives forevermore. So yes, we have a living hope. But we also have an everlasting hope. It's a little different than the meaning of living. Because you see, Jesus could be alive and then die again, but that's not going to happen because he's received everlasting life. Not just new life, everlasting life, and imparted that everlasting life to us. So we have an everlasting hope, and it says there in verse 4, and into an inheritance, that would be our eternal life, right? That can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. So the promise of eternal life is everlasting life. And that doesn't just describe the duration of everlasting life, but the quality of everlasting life. Think about for a minute, living forever as some kind of a weird zombie. That's not everlasting life. You might look at that and say, well, that's undead. But you could look at that, that's not everlasting life. You could could live forever as a zombie, that's not everlasting life. The quality of everlasting life is as significant as the duration. So when we say everlasting, we're not just talking about the length, but we're talking about the duration. Yes, we're talking about the quality as well. That's the hope we have, an everlasting hope. The Father will preserve our inheritance for us throughout all eternity. That is, he'll preserve us in eternity. He is keeping our inheritance and all the rewards of serving God that he chooses to bestow upon us. He's keeping our inheritance safe in heaven for when we arrive there. Jesus said, if it weren't true, I wouldn't have said it. My father's house, there are many rooms or mansions, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So we know that all of God's promises await us in everlasting life. And that's the hope we have. Our hope is eternal because... Jesus has promised to give us his eternal life, not just to live a long time, but the quality of eternal life forever. That's a wonderful hope. Not just an eternal hope or living hope, an everlasting hope. And then something very important, there are some people that doubt that, but we've been given a certain hope. A certain hope. Look at verse 5, and all of this from or through God the Father. In verse 5, we've read it already, Who through faith, now we're talking about those who've received this hope, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So through faith, we're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time or the last days. That's what God has promised us. And does God promise and not fulfill? Does he speak and not, then not act? Is he a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind? You see, that's the truth of God's word. We can trust his promise. And the hope we have is not only eternal, not only living and everlasting, it is certain. The Father protects us by his infinite power because of our faith in him. He's preserving us until he fulfills his promise to deliver us from this world. Amen? Amen. We're looking forward to that. You see, I can tell you this. When I'm in heaven, I'm not going to check the Fox News website. Not going to do it. I don't even do it now too much, really. I've switched news channels. But, you know, we're not going to be perplexed and concerned about what's happening here on earth when we're in God's presence and having received our hope. Those things aren't going to matter. They really don't matter all that much now, to be honest. He is preserving us until he fulfills his promise to deliver us from this world. And our hope is assured because Jesus is surely coming again to save us. Amen. So yes, we have a living hope, an everlasting and eternal hope, and a certain hope. And that we receive through God the Father. Okay, what's next? Well, in verses 6 through 9 we see that we have hope in not just an eternal future, but we have hope in a difficult present. We can relate to those terms, a difficult present. Oh, yes, we have an eternal future, and it's great to think about that. But in the meantime, we have a difficult present. And we have hope in a difficult present through God the Son. This is what it says in verses 6 through 9. We read in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have had, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, now we're focused in on the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, second member of the Trinity. And we have that hope through him, hope in a difficult present through God the Son. You know, there is a purpose in earthly trials. That's what verses 6 and 7 show us. There's a purpose. There better be a purpose, because I'm not crazy about earthly trials. I mean, if they just happen and people were to come along, or the Bible were to say, well, you're going to suffer, it doesn't really matter or mean anything, but you're going to suffer. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? Suffering without a purpose. The Bible is clear. Peter is clear. Peter suffered. He knew these people were suffering, and he's letting them know that there's a purpose to our earthly trials. What what is that purpose? Well, first of all, the Son proves our faith genuine through difficult circumstances. You see, you actually learn something through trials. You learn to trust God. You learn that God is trustworthy. You learn to put your faith in God. You learn that your faith is real. You learn that prayer works. God answers prayer. Those are the kinds of things. There are many, but there are, there are, those are the kinds of things you learn through trials. You wouldn't learn them any other way. You know, one of the things that's been hard for me is over the years learning this truth, that you don't always learn by getting it right. 
and you often learn by getting it wrong. Even a physical discipline. You know, whether you're training in, in one way or another, it could be for athletics, it could be martial arts, you get it wrong and you learn through getting it wrong. It's by getting it wrong that you eventually get it right. And, and this is true as well in music, in the arts. This is true in various different disciplines. You get it wrong, and through getting it wrong, you eventually learn to get it right. Getting it right out of the box by luck doesn't teach you anything. Like, for example, if you were given a complex algebraic equation to solve, and the teacher asked you to give the answer, and you hadn't done your homework, and you just kind of said, five, and it happened to be the right answer, five, very good, Mr. Gentle. You got it right. You didn't learn anything. But you got it right. You see, getting it wrong would have been better. If you said four, then the teacher would say, well, how'd you come up with four? Let's figure out how to get to the right answer, which is five. I, I want you to understand trials serve a purpose. And, and, and the Son of God proves our faith genuine through these difficult circumstances. Our faith, as it says here in verses six and seven, is more valuable than even the most valuable earthly treasure. And that earthly treasure is perishable. It's all going to melt. And yet our faith is of greater worth than gold. Gold is pretty valuable, especially right now. And our faith is more precious than gold. Our faith is refined through trials the way that gold is refined by fire. I don't know if you know this, but when they find gold, it has a lot of impurity. They have to melt it down and skim the impurities off of it. If you don't melt down gold ore, you don't get valuable gold. You don't get pure gold. We sing that song, Refiner's Fire. It talks about God refining us through the fire, through trials. That is the process that God is putting us through. Why? So that we aren't just ore. So that we actually become pure gold in his sight. That's one of the things that God is doing through those trials. And that's enough. But he's also preparing our faith to be rewarded by him when he is revealed to the world. See, the day is coming when he's going to reveal himself to the world, and I hope that happens tomorrow. Actually, I'm okay if we don't finish the Bible study tonight. That's good with me, too. He's going to prepare our hearts in such a way and prepare our faith to be rewarded by him when he's revealed to the world. That day will surely come. And we're told there, I like the way it says this, it says, it's being, our faith is being refined by far that may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's talking about Jesus Christ being revealed to the world. And if our faith goes through trials, when Christ is revealed, our faith will bring praise, glory, and honor to him. And isn't that, after all, what should be happening in our lives? What's praise? Praise is commendation, saying something true and noble about someone. That's what praise is. What's glory? And by the way, we give praise, glory, and honor to God, not to anyone else. But glory is to give an opinion or judgment and to view someone as excellent and magnificent. Only God deserves praise and glory. And then we see honor. What's honor? Honor is reverence, respect, to show deference, to to value or speak of someone's worthiness. Only God receives honor, truly deserves our honor. And it happens as our faith is tried. By the way, it doesn't happen unless it happens, unless our faith is tried. And so I think it helps us to understand that there's a purpose 
to our earthly trials. And this is evidence to our hearts. And there is evidence to our sincere faith. Evidence. Evidence. What's the evidence that you have faith? Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Though you have not seen him, and and listen, if you have seen Jesus, don't tell me. Okay, because I might be a little cynical. Because I know where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God the Father. I'm not saying God can't give you a vision. That's a different thing. But we know where God is and has been since he ascended into heaven, at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession on our behalf. But though we haven't seen him, and I clearly can tell you, I haven't seen him. I may have had visions and God was in a dream or a vision of some sort, but, but certainly not like here and now. And he said to these people, though you have not seen him, and by the way, Peter had seen him. He saw the risen Christ. But though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You see, the evidence of your faith is that you love him. And though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. How do you get someone to believe in something they can't see? Well, what does the book of Hebrews say about faith? The evidence of things hoped for, the, the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. You're talking about faith, and only God can give you that faith. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Faith. Faith is in and of itself the evidence. The evidence is faith. It's the evidence that you have faith. And you know, the Son reveals himself to us as we love him and believe in him. And that's how we, quote-unquote, see Jesus. I remember that song uh, we used to sing, I want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him, to say that I love him. You know, there's a song we used to sing many years ago, but we weren't really speaking literally when we sang those songs, but we were speaking figuratively. We wanted by faith to experience Christ in a very real way. And that can happen through faith. Peter had seen him. He he loved him and believed in him. But Peter had walked with him for three and a half years, saw the risen Christ, saw him ascend into heaven. But his readers had not seen him, yet they loved him and believed in him. You haven't seen him, yet you love him and believe in him if if you know Christ and are saved. And he fills us with a joy in the midst of our difficulties that cannot be explained. And that right there is evidence of faith. If you've ever experienced joy... In this last year, as crazy as it was, that's evidence of your faith. Because this year didn't have a whole lot to be joyful about, in and of itself, apart from God. And yet we've experienced joy in his presence. We've experienced joy in fellowship. We've experienced, as it says here, inexpressible and glorious joy. That's kind of a way of saying uh, something you can't even really understand or explain. You've experienced that. Now, where does that come from? Is it delusion? No. No. It's the evidence of your faith. Our hope is realized because we realize that Jesus has saved our souls. We actually believe that. And so we experience an inexpressible and glorious joy. For we are receiving, you are, as it says here, receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You're receiving that. You're you're saved. Amen? Amen. Well, now we get to the last section here, and we'll close with this. We not only have a hope for an eternal future through our God, God the Father, we not only have a hope in a difficult present through God the Son, we have hope from a distant past through God the Spirit. 
And that's how Peter presented in verses 10 through 12. Hope from a distant past through God the Spirit. Concerning this salvation, he says in verse 10, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long, to look into these things. So we've talked about God the Father, now we talk about God the Son, now we talk about God the Holy Spirit. And he offers us and gives to us a hope from the distant past that started in the distant past but has been realized in our lives. You see, the Old Testament prophets, according to verses 10 through 11, the Old Testament prophets spoke of our present salvation before it was accomplished. You know this. They spoke of our present salvation through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection before it happened. We call that prophecy. You see, the Spirit revealed to them the grace of God that was to come to us through Messiah. The word in Hebrew for Messiah, or the word in Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, is Christ. And Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. They, that is the prophets, diligently studied God's word to determine when Messiah would come. They carefully tried to determine what the circumstances would be when he would arrive. You know, it's interesting. I like this phrase. And remember I said this is a, a great example of wonderful Greek. I mentioned that last week. I have to point this out. Note where it says in verse 10 that they searched intently with the greatest care. That phrase is translated into English, but from the original Greek, it actually was used to describe a dog sniffing something out with his nose, searching intently. Now, dogs have an incredible sense of smell. And just imagine, just, just trying to sniff it out. That's what they were trying to do, just trying to sniff out the truth. But they hadn't experienced or realized the truth of Jesus Christ yet. But they were trying to sniff it out. And they did a pretty good job of presenting through the Spirit the truth of God's Word before it happened. They certainly did. In fact, they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of His resurrection and His coming kingdom all throughout the Old Covenant. I think of the sufferings of Christ described, and by the way, if you're interested, homework, Psalm 22. Or Isaiah 52 through 53. You can't read that and not know that he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Or how about the glories of his resurrection and the coming kingdom? You'll see that throughout the Psalms. One of the things that we've been, been wonderfully blessed by in our studies in the book of Psalms is so many of the Psalms talk about the glorious kingdom that is to come. And even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, our hope is recognized because we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament evangelists are mentioned here as well in verse 12. They spoke of our present salvation after it was accomplished. So the prophets predicted it, and then the evangelists of the New Testament, the apostles and disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, they spoke of our present salvation after it was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Spirit revealed to the prophets that God's grace would be revealed to a future generation, but he inspired the evangelists to preach the message of God's grace after Jesus was revealed. So because of the Spirit, 
We knew when it was, we knew generally when it was going to happen, but we knew that it was going to happen and what was going to happen. And then, because the Spirit went on to inspire the New Testament teachers and prophets and evangelists, it was then preached after it happened and revealed to a generation, to generations and to us. Amen? Our hope is realized because we realize that Jesus is the Christ preached in the New Testament, predicted in the Old Testament, preached in the New Testament. And finally, in the latter part of verse 12, he says this very interesting phrase. He says, even angels long to look into these things. Now, now it's said in a way to encourage you to look into these things. I mean, the Old Testament prophets looked into these things intently, like a dog sniffing out the truth. The New Testament evangelists took that truth after they received it and shared it to the world as generations did, generations upon generations. But even angels, even angels, as it says here, long to look into these things. Have you looked into these things? Because angels are into it. Angels are not all-knowing, but they are intrigued by these things. Oh, the Old Testament prophets were inspired by God's word to search for Messiah in the world. I hope you are. The New Testament evangelists were inspired by God's work to make Christ known to the world. I I hope you are as well. But angels are inspired by God's word to understand his love for this world. I don't even think they can wrap their angel brains around God's love for human beings. I have a hard time with it. I know that. What in the world will it take for you to understand his love for you? I can answer that question. The Holy Spirit speaking to you through the power of God's word. That's how God reveals his heart to us. That's the hope that we need to have in Christ. The hope for an eternal future through God the Father. The hope in a difficult present through God the Son. And hope from the distant past through God the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this message in your word. What can we say, really, except thank you? What can we say, really, other than we're so blessed to know that you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have provided all things for us and are working all things for our good. Lord God, we're grateful and we praise you. Thank you for revealing these blessings and these truths to our hearts to this evening. Thank you for inspiring Peter. and Thank you for giving us this opportunity to study your word. Oh, Lord God, we thank you praise you, and ask that you continue to reveal your heart to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.